preaching this morning from the book of Ephesians chapter 4 in our series on spirit-filled family living. Our principle has been the same throughout the summer. The Bible teaches us that if we sow to our carnal natures, we will reap a harvest of death. If we sow to the Holy Spirit, we will reap a harvest of life. Every child of God has two natures within him, within her. We have the old nature that we were born with, the flesh, the Bible calls it. We also have the Holy Spirit of God, God dwelling within us. We have a choice to make with every thought we think, every word we say, every attitude that we hold. We have a choice. We must understand that each one of those things, each thought, each attitude, each word is a seed. And we are dropping those seeds in the soil of our lives. If we sow toward the old nature, what the old nature wants us to do, there will be a harvest of death. If we sow to what the Holy Spirit wants us to do, there will be a harvest of life. That we've been looking at all summer. And as I've said to you so many times before, if you take a snapshot of your life today as it is, it's a result of seed that has been sown. Your life right now is a harvest. And sometime in the future, uh, you'll you'll reap a harvest of the seed that you're sowing right now. Sowing and reaping is the law of God's universe, and you can't beat it. And for those of you who want want to sow to the Spirit, you don't want to beat it. You just want to get in on it. Because there is a great harvest for those children of God who will sow to the Spirit. One of the challenges that I wanted to issue you throughout the summer is to consider the fact that even if you have sown to your flesh up to this point and you're reaping a bad harvest, you don't have to continue sowing to the flesh. You have a future. God wants to give you one. Remember, the Bible says God knows the plans that he has for us. Plans to give us a future and a hope. So you can stop sowing bad seed today and start sowing spiritual seed and have a harvest of grace in the future. Last time, and actually the last two weeks that we've gotten together, our study has been revolving around three commands that we find for every spirit-filled believer. There are three instructions for every spirit-filled Christian. You say, Pastor Hoover, what is a spirit-filled Christian like? A spirit-filled Christian obeys these three commands. The first command is put off the old self. That is the person who we were, the person we were before we were born again. Uh, The old nature, the old flesh, the old person. When you get saved, you don't lose that. How many of you know, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you know from experience that even though you can become a child of God, you still have the old nature with you that's still predisposed toward doing wrong? Paul Paul called it a body of death uh, in the book of Romans chapter 7. And he asked, How shall I be delivered from this body of death? There was a cruel punishment in Paul's day in which a living person would have to to himself bound a corpse, a dead body. And as that corpse decayed, it would infect the living person. And often that individual would die from that punishment. When Paul looked at his old nature, he thought about that experience. And he, he, he saw that old nature as a corpse that was bound to him. And he asked, how can I be delivered? And he gave the answer through Jesus Christ. So the first command that a spirit-filled Christian obeys is to put off the old self, the old person we were before we were saved. Command number two is to be made new. The language indicates here this isn't something we do. Putting off the old nature is something we do, but not this one. This is something we allow to happen. It is something God wants to do, and we allow it. How do we become, or how do we, how, how do we be made new? The answer is we accept our new identity in Jesus Christ. We believe what the Bible says about us. As children of God, we can find ourselves sitting sometimes and we think, how can a Christian do this? Well, the answer is, we still have the old nature. 
The challenge is to believe who we are in Jesus Christ. We fail so much. How do we accept the reality that we are indeed children of God, joint heirs with Christ, reborn, made new? How do we believe that? We accept it by faith. And so that's the second command of the Spirit-filled Christian. Put off the old self. Accept your identity in Jesus Christ. And now number three, put on the new self. Put on the new self. I want you to listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24 again. I've been sharing this with you for several weeks. The Bible says, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Think about that. When you got saved, you have a new identity. You are a new person. You have been recreated to be like Jesus Christ. Last week, we started to get specific. We've been looking at three church letters, three church epistles. We've looked at the book of Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. And in each of those three letters, we have the same principle, putting off the old person, accepting our new identity, and putting on the new person in Jesus Christ. That's the principle. But in all three books, as soon as the Holy Spirit lays down the principle, he starts getting specific because there are some characteristics of the old self that we have to get rid of, and there are characteristics of the new person in Jesus Christ that we have to accept and begin to put on in our lives. So, the principle is there, put off the old self, accept your new identity, put on the new self. But now, the Holy Spirit starts getting specific. Last week was our first look at one of those specifics. We looked at putting off deceit, which is characteristic of the old self, and putting on truth, which is characteristic of God. Now, all we're doing, all I'm doing in these sermons, is I'm just walking through the scripture with you. We're just taking it as it comes. We're going to move on now to the second specific of when it comes to putting off the old self and putting on the new self. Now, I, I know many of you have written me, you've called me, and you've let me know you are buying into what the Holy Spirit is teaching this summer. And you have begun to understand that every thought you think, every word you say, every action you perform is a seed. And I'm glad to hear what, what's going on. You're, you're blessing me with your stories. But I just want to say, for those of you who have bought into what the Word of God is teaching us, we today are encountering an extremely powerful seed. And unfortunately, at first, I'm going to be talking about a very negative seed. But it is extraordinarily potent. The seed I'm going to talk about today, when I talk about putting off the old person, it has the power and the potential to choke the life out of every relationship that you have, even if you're a child of God. It can choke the life out of your relationship with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your parents, with your grandchildren, with the people that you work with. It is an extremely potent seed. That's why I have called this sermon, Taking the Killer Seed Out of Your Bag. Taking the Killer Seed Out of Your Bag. With that in mind, read with me in Ephesians chapter 4, this time beginning in verse 22. We're going to look at the principle again. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. That's last week's specific. For we're all members of one body. Verse 26. Here's the next one. In your anger, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon or while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Church, who can begin to calculate the damage done by angry people? Who can begin 
to calculate the damage done by angry people. Anger rips marriages apart. Wives are abused because a man is angry. Children are abused because somebody is angry. And even if it does not rise to the level of physical abuse, oftentimes children are humiliated. They lose their sense of self-worth. They hear words that make them feel stupid or unloved. Not because they are stupid and not even because they are unloved, but because somebody is angry. I've talked to so many couples in counseling. One of the things that I've discovered from hearing their stories and also by observing life on my own is that often in a conflict, there is a communication about what one member of the marriage feels about the other member, but it's not said in objectivity. Things are said in a fashion that is calculated to do damage because somebody is angry. Think about the things that you've said that have hurt other people. How many of them were totally true? How many of them were just said in anger? And you can ratchet it up as high as you want to. Terrorists fly airplanes into buildings because somebody is angry. On September 11th last year, those men did not hijack those aircraft and fly their aircraft into the World Trade Center and to the Pentagon. They didn't do it because they were happy. They did it because somebody was angry. It's tragic, the damage that anger does in our world. But let me get personal. It is tragic how much damage anger does in my world and in your world. That being true, we are not surprised that the Holy Spirit says, put off the anger that causes you to sin. It is part of the old self. It is part of who you used to be. It is not part of your new identity. Now, I've got church, I've got so much ground to cover that that is the end of the introduction. I got to tell you right now, I don't know if that's homiletically sound or not, but that's the end of the introduction. We're going to move now very quickly into a look at anger itself. What is the root of anger? What is the root? What is the cause of anger? Oddly enough, I don't think most people ever get deep enough to ask this question. Because if you ask a person why he's angry, he'll usually say, well, it's because of my wife. She makes me angry. Or it's my husband is a jerk. He makes me angry. Or my parents, they just won't let me do anything. If you ask me the source of my anger, the source of my anger is my wife, my husband, my parents. It's my kids. It's the people I work with. We normally think of anger as a response to someone or something. But when we ask what is at the root of anger, we need to understand that it goes deeper than that. When you think about anger in general and you ask, why do people get angry? The root of the anger is this. Anger is a response to perceived wrong. Anger is a response to perceived wrong. Face it. You don't get angry when somebody does what you think is right. When somebody does the right thing, you don't get angry at them. When someone says what you think that person should say, you don't get angry at them. We get angry when something isn't right in our world. A do-it-yourself catalog received the following letter from one of its customers. Quote, I built a birdhouse according to your stupid plans. And not only is it much too big, it keeps blowing out of the tree. Sign unhappy. The firm replied, dear unhappy, we're sorry about the mix-up. We accidentally sent you a sailboat blueprint. But if you think you are unhappy, you should read the letter from the guy who came in last in the yacht club regatta. 
Now, that's, that's kind of ingesting what I'm talking about today. We get angry when something's not right, when it doesn't fit, when it's not appropriate. Beyond that, injustice is a stimulus for anger. Think about our text again. The Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. From that, we learn that anger can be appropriate. Anger, frankly, folks, is an emotion that God has given us. God has allowed us to have. There are people who say Christians should never be angry. That's incorrect. The Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Listen, this would be a terrible world if we did not have the capacity for righteous indignation. The, the experts tell us that child abductions and, and criminal activity performed against children is no worse this year than in previous years. But certainly, these child abductions and, and murders have received a great deal of attention, and I think appropriately so. Wouldn't this be some world if we couldn't get angry when someone abuses a child? Wouldn't this be some world if we couldn't get angry when terrorists fly aircraft into our buildings? There is an appropriate anger. Injustice is a stimulus for anger. And then, anger is the frequent result of someone or something blocking our goals. You know, you fellows this morning, who sat in your car and honked the horn while your wife was late getting out of the car, and you were frustrated about that. Why were you mad? You're mad because your wife is blocking your goal. You didn't get to church on time. I don't know, maybe it's the wife who was sitting in the car honking the horn while the husband is late. I don't know. But we often get angry because somebody is keeping us from getting to our, to our objective. We could go on and on today, but all we'd be doing is reinforcing the simple concept that anger is a response to wrong. We don't get angry when somebody does right. We don't get angry when somebody says what we think is the appropriate thing. So then, if anger is a response to wrong and we're children of God... Where does that leave us? Because we're in a world that's very evil, at least a very imperfect world. That means every day of our lives, we're going to have to deal with something that is going to stimulate us to anger, maybe even legitimately. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit of God is telling us to put off this kind of anger because it's not for the child of God. So how do we overcome? And by the way, I started to ask this. I'm not going to ask this today. I started to ask how many of you are angry. Just raise your hand this morning, but I won't do that. But for, if you are mad at somebody this morning and mad at something, call this lab time. Because we're going we're gonna to explore our anger and we're going to ask some questions. The first question that every child of God must ask himself in a moment of anger. And by the way, it's a good thing to pause when you're angry. Someone said count to ten. I heard someone say she said the Lord's Prayer when she was angry. It's a good idea. Someone quoted the 23rd Psalm. Whatever you do, if you've got some kind of mechanism built into your life where you can can wait a little bit when you're angry. It's a good thing. Here, let me give you some advice this morning. If you're angry, if you're inclined to be angry, ask yourself some questions. Here is the first question. Is my anger appropriate? Well, that goes back to the issue we just talked about because we're angry some, because someone is wrong. So then if I'm going to know if my anger is appropriate, I'm going to have to go back through that, through that filter. And that raises some questions. And the first question that that raises is, is the other guy really wrong? Is the other guy really wrong? Remember, our depraved human nature tends to see things from our own perspective. If pastoring 26 years has taught me anything, when I'm counseling, I have learned to listen to both sides of the story, especially in marriage counseling. 
few times I've had a guy, in fact, many times, I said few just to be nice. Many times I've had a guy come into my office, he's having problems with his wife, and he begins to tell me about her, and I'm sitting back there thinking, boy, this guy is married to the wicked witch of the West. I mean, how did a nice guy like this marry such a terrible woman? But then his wife comes in. And I'm thinking, man, I only got about a third of the story here. And now I'm understanding why she was doing all the things he was screaming about. I have learned to hear both sides of the story. Now, even the best of us is going to see life from our own perspective. And then beyond that, when we're asking the question, is the other guy really in the wrong? We have to ask ourselves, have we had some kind of misunderstanding? Let's unscrew the halos for a moment. Is there a husband here today? Don't raise your hand. Is there a husband here today and you got in an argument with your wife? Maybe it lasted 20 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe it lasted half a day. And this full-blown conflict is going on. At the end of the conflict, when it calms down, you finally discover that you weren't arguing over anything at all. It was just a misunderstanding, miscommunication. See, a lot of times when we ask, is the other person really wrong? We need to stop and ask, is it possible that we really haven't seen the entire picture? Heard about a girl in the shopping mall. She was wearing a, a jersey. You know how kids often wear these jerseys that are way too big? And a, a lady and her husband were walking through the mall, and they saw this girl, and the woman spoke to her husband and said, isn't that the most pathetic thing you've ever seen in your life? These young people today, just horrible. Look at that. Look at what's on that girl's shirt. H-A-R-L-O-T, harlot. She said, I can't imagine that a young woman would walk through a mall with that word on her shirt. And about that time, the girl raised both of her hands, and it was revealed that the girl was wearing a a jersey for the Charlotte Hornets. And the entire word was C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E. And isn't that like life sometimes? We're angry because we don't see the whole picture. So if we're angry today, we have to ask ourselves, is my anger appropriate? Is the other guy really in the wrong? Is it possible that there's a misunderstanding? And to further complicate the picture, it's even possible to be in a conflict when both individuals are right about the facts. One of the most peculiar conflicts recorded in the Bible is between two great men of God, the first missionary team, Paul, who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, and Barnabas, the man the Bible calls the son of encouragement. These were the first two missionaries. Did you know they had an argument that was so bad, as far as we know, they never spoke to each other again? I've had people tell me, Pastor, you know, I've had, a, I've had a bad experience in a church. I just couldn't believe I'd have a bad experience in a church. I had a conflict with somebody, a conflict with a pastor, a conflict with someone in the church. Hey, let me tell you something. The first two missionaries had such an argument, they never spoke to each other again. Great men. And what's really been a challenge to me, and not that I'm a smart man, but I look at the story and I try to figure out who's right. It seems that Barnabas had a nephew named Mark, and Mark wanted to go with Paul and Barnabas on a missionary trip, but he, he, he checked out at some point, and later on, Mark got his life right and wanted to go again, and Barnabas said, let's take Mark, and Paul said, nothing doing. That guy quit on us. I'm not taking him again. Conflict. And as far as we know, these two guys, in fact, it was Barnabas. Remember, when Paul got saved, it was Barnabas who made Paul feel comfortable in church. 
And I look at that story and I want to ask who is right. And when it comes down to it, I think Barnabas is right on the facts. And I think Paul is right on the facts. At that point, it becomes a matter of judgment. All I'm trying to say to us this morning is anger is a complicated issue. And you have to ask yourself, do I have a right to be anger? Is my anger appropriate? How can I be sure that I am right and the other guy is really wrong? It's no wonder the Bible tells us in James chapter 1 verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Because it's hard to know if the other person really is wrong. Okay, have you got that settled? Let's move on now to another one that's even tougher. Just how angry can a sinner get at another sinner? Just how angry can one sinner get over another sinner's sinner's sin? I want to talk to spirit-filled people for a moment. I believe we have some in our church today. If you're in the flesh, this may have never happened to you. But I, I wonder, is there a spirit-filled man here? You start to get angry at your wife sometime. There's something, some small thing perhaps that she does. And you weigh it out and you say, there's no doubt about it. I'm right. She's wrong. No doubt about it. She's blocking my goal with no good reason. I'm just mad at her. I have a right to be mad at her. And just as you're about to indulge yourself in a moment of anger, righteous anger, the Holy Spirit comes along and says to you, don't you do the same thing to me? And before you know it, when you intended to get mad at your wife, you find yourself on your knees pouring out your heart to God and saying, oh God, I'm sorry. I didn't even realize I was doing that to you. See, I think this is a good question for some of us who are angry too much of the time. We need to ask ourselves just how angry can one sinner afford to get at another sinner? Jesus put it this way in Luke 6 verse 41. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fell to see the plank in your own eye? Another question that we need to deal with and another thing we need to understand when we're asking is our, is our anger appropriate? We need to understand that it is never appropriate to be angry at God. You know, there's a lot of sappy stuff in the Christian community today. And one of the things that just really irks me every time I hear it is I hear sometimes this, you know, sort of will we well meaning guy say that God understands if you're angry at him. Tell God if you're angry at him because he understands. Could I just tell you, no, he doesn't. God does not understand if you're angry at him. Anger is a response to perceived wrong and God does not do wrong. God never does any wrong. So therefore, there is never any legitimate cause to be angry at God. God has already given us the assurance of Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in which we know that God is working all things for our good. So even if something bad is happening, God is in the process of working it for our good. How can we be angry at him? I read the story, maybe apocryphal, I don't know, but I read the story of a man who was a survivor, sole survivor, of a shipwreck. He washed up on a small uninhabited island. And when he first was on the island, he prayed feverishly for God to rescue him. He prayed for God to deliver him, but nothing happened. And day passed after day. And finally, he just gave up on God and said, God, I don't think you're going to deliver me. And he went out and began to collect pieces of driftwood and what few branches he could find. And he built a hut there to protect him, at least in some measure, from the elements. One day while he was out looking for food, hut caught on fire and burned down. And when he came back, all everything that he had, every, every piece of 
possession, every scrap that he had collected was burned and gone. And he lay there and he beat the sand with his fist and he said, God, I'm checking out on you. I tried to believe in you. I prayed that you would rescue me and you didn't rescue me. And then I just got this little hut. That's all I had. Just this little hut. I had this hut. And then you let it catch on fire. He said, God, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. An hour later, a ship came and he was rescued. And when he asked him how, 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 how they found him, he said, they said, we saw your smoke signals. Isn't that like God? Someone as well said, if you're tempted to get angry, count to ten. Well, while you're counting, you need to ask yourself, is my anger legitimate? Is it appropriate? But that's not the big question. The big question is, am I responding to my anger in the right way? It is totally possible to have a legitimate cause for anger and still drop a killer seed of the flesh in the soil of your life and relationships. Remember our text. Our text says, in your anger, do not sin. Inherent in that statement is that it's possible to be angry and not sin. So you could have a legitimate cause for anger. You could be right in your anger, but then sin. The challenge is in responding to anger in the right way. Okay, somebody says, Pastor, how do you respond to anger in the right way? Well, our text gives us a clue. Number one, we have to be careful about how long we stay angry. Do not let the sun go down on or go down while you are still angry. So that's the thing we have to be careful of. You be careful of how long you stay angry. You know, if we're not careful, we can keep stoking the fire of our anger and keep it going. Then secondly, here's the next thing we need to consider as we ask ourselves, how do we respond to anger? We need to understand that the spirit-filled believer is always under control. Hey, are you filled with God's spirit? Don't tell me that you speak in tongues. Don't tell me that you can jump pews. Don't tell me what you do. Let me ask you this. Are you always under control? Because the Bible says, when it talks about the fruit of the spirit, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I talk to people who tell me they're spirit-filled, and I mean, boy, they can talk a blue streak about how they're walking with the Spirit of God, but something can happen that makes them unhappy, and they blow their top. Spirit-filled people are always under control, even when they're angry. And I hear somebody say, well, Pastor, I, I, I manage my anger just fine I just hold it in. That's not anger management. All you're doing is just storing it up and you're probably going to tend toward depression. We must remember that if we do something wrong as a result, even of legitimate anger, it's still a sin. And church, that leads me to this. What makes anger so dangerous is that Satan is quick to exploit it. Let's continue on in our text this morning in Ephesians 4 verse 26. In your anger... Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Look at this. And do not give the devil a foothold. Okay? Do you deal with anger? All of us do. How do you respond to anger? You say, Pastor, I'm it's legitimate. I have a right to be angry. Okay, maybe you do. But here's what I want you to understand. The next time you're angry, I want you to get a, me- a mental image of Satan standing right there tapping his foot. Because he's right there. He's got you right where he wants you. Now, you don't have to let him in, but I'll guarantee if you get angry, he's going to be right there. Because here's the thing. He knows even with legitimate anger, if you're not careful, 
You'll give him place. You'll give him space. You'll give him an opportunity to work. There are three examples of this that I want to give you very quickly this morning. The first one is a man we know of as Cain. Why do you know about Cain? What did Cain do that it makes him an example of infamy? Why, why is he famous? He killed his brother, right? But now here's what I want you to listen to. We're going to go back to the book of Genesis. And I want you to hear what God said to Cain between the time that Cain got angry. Remember, Cain was angry because God rejected his sacrifice. He, accept, he accepted his brothers. He rejected his sacrifice. Cain got angry. Later, he killed his brother. What we're going to look at right now is what God said to Cain while he was still angry, but before he killed his brother. This is very valuable. Listen. Genesis 4, verse 7. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master it. Think about this. If Cain got angry, it would have still been a sin. But if he had gotten right with God, we, would have looked back. we wouldn't think about him the way we think about him. He had a moment in time. There was a window of time in which Cain could have dealt with his anger appropriately. What he did not understand was that Satan was right outside his door. And folks, let me say something to you. You can be a child of God. You can be a Christian who believes the Bible. You can be a member of Messiah Baptist Church. But when you get angry, please don't forget that Satan is right outside your door just waiting for you. If you don't believe that, just talk to Moses. Moses had the responsibility of leading two and a half to three million people through the wilderness to the promised land, which they had never seen. And on top of that, they they had to be some of the cruddiest people in the history of the world. Because they just, I mean, it was like, it was like herding cats. I mean, they were just angry about everything. You know, they didn't have water. They're mad about that. They didn't have food. They get mad about that. Pharaoh's chasing. They want to go back. I mean, they, and they're always mad at Moses. And Moses was just doing what God wanted him to do. Finally, they came to this place where they didn't have water. God had taken care of them before. The people should have had confidence in God. But now they're mad. They're mad at God. They're mad at Moses. And Moses takes his rod out, remember? And then he says something really bad. He said, must I get water for you rebels? And he hit the rock with his rod. In the book of 1 Corinthians, we're told that that rock is a type of Christ. Moses reacted in his anger. See, see, here's the thing. He was appropriate in his anger. He was, it was the right thing for Moses to be angry. The people did not have any right to behave that way toward Moses. So yes, he had a legitimate anger. But the problem was Satan was waiting right outside his door and he struck the rock. And because of that, he didn't get to go to the promised land. Elijah is another example. He had a right to be angry, but not at God. Well, what's the answer? I'll close with this this morning. You know our principle. We're talking about putting off the old person and putting on the new person. What's characteristic of the old person? The old person gets mad and the old person reacts wrongly to anger. We're to put that person off. But what do we put in its place? This and I'm through. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read about 10 verses. In these 10 verses, we're going to look at the principle all over again. We're going to walk right through this thing about anger. And when we get to the end, God is going to tell us what to put in the place of anger in our lives. This is wonderful. Please listen with all your hearts. The Bible says in Colossians 3 verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of, of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Look at these. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Hey, you don't have to bear with somebody if they're doing right. You have to bear with somebody if they're doing wrong. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. You remember the point of the sermon when I asked you just how much, how mad can one sinner get at another sinner? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. And here's your answer, verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. What is the opposite of anger? It's peace. You ever just get up in the morning and you're having a great day and you're at peace. You love your wife, you love your kids, you love your world, you love your job. I mean, you love your car, you just love everything is beautiful. And within 20 minutes, somebody makes you furious. Where has your peace gone? I guarantee it's not there anymore. Amen? Let's unscrew the halos. I can tell you about Mark Hoover. The moment I get angry, I lose my peace. Now, somebody can say, Pastor, I mean, it just happens. What am I going to do? If stuff is going good, I feel good. When stuff's going bad, I feel bad. I get mad. And there's nothing I can do about it. Oh, yes, there is. Because here's the thing. The one thing I've discovered about anger is anger will govern you. Anger will, anger will begin to rule in your life if you leave it there. That's why the Bible said don't hold your anger after the sun goes down. It will govern you. It will dictate to you. It will tell you what to say. It will tell you what to do. It will tell you how to act. How many stupid things have we done when we, when we were angry? I remember a head coach, one of the most brilliant head coaches in pro football, got mad one day and hit the locker with his fist and broke his hand. For weeks, he had to wear a cast on his hand. How bright is that? That's, I'm saying anger will govern you. It will rule you. That's why the Bible says, let the peace of Christ rule you. Let it govern you. you say, Pastor, how do I get this peace of Christ? It's a gift. The night before Jesus was arrested, he said to his disciples in John 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I, not as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You say, Pastor, what is the peace of God? I got to tell you real, real quickly. I have a hard time explaining the peace of God. The Bible is right. It passes understanding. I've seen the peace of God in the most remarkable places. In the middle of the night, when I've gotten a phone call, that someone in this congregation has been told that they have lost a loved one unexpectedly, I've been there with those people and I have seen the peace of God. I've been there when someone who's awakened in the recovery room in the hospital has heard the doctor say, it is malignant and there's nothing we can do about it. 
it's terminal. I have still seen the peace of God. I can't explain it. And I can't understand it. But I do know that it's a gift that God gives his children. Jesus said, I leave my peace with you. I give it to you. It's not like the world, but I'm going to give you my peace. If anger is governing Mark Hoover's life, I've got to deal with two thoughts. Number one, I'm either not saved and I don't have the peace of Christ. Or number two, I am saved, but I'm not choosing to let the peace of Christ rule my heart. See, the peace of Christ is a choice that you make. You accept the peace of Christ. You make the choice to accept God's peace. We live in a world today where there's a word for every kind of rage. Road rage, air rage, all kinds of rage. But God doesn't want his people living in that kind of anger. It does so much damage. Let's pray today. Father, would you help us as we look at our own lives? And I pray that you'll help me as a dad, as a husband, as a friend, as a worker. Father, I pray that you'll help me to deal with anger. All of us deal with it. I pray for those, Father, who internalize it and struggle with depression as a result. Oh, God, may today we take some honest looks at our anger and ask the question, do we really have a right to be angry? Beyond that, are we responding appropriately? Lord, maybe even in this service today, you could help someone who's had long-standing anger to just let it go, to accept the peace of Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you'll work in this place today. If there's someone here today who's never been saved, may today be the day of salvation. May they have the courage to step out of their seats and come to trust Jesus Christ. Father, if there's someone here that you've led to become part of our church fellowship, may they come in confidence. And oh God, there's so many burdens represented by these individuals who are here today. If someone has a burden and he or she wants to kneel at this altar and ask you for help, would you hear their prayer? Would you give them according to your will the desires of their hearts? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.